Stacey Cabrera, and this is Spill in the Details, a podcast devoted to exploring the way philosophical wisdom and insights fill in the details of my favorite books, films, and works of art, provoking thoughtful discussion and meaning-making in the everyday life routine. This is what I call fossils of the past and fossils of the future. He handed Burlap the drawing. It was an ink touched with colored washes, extraordinarily brilliant and lively. Curving in a magnificently sweeping S, a grotesque procession of monsters marched diagonally down and across the paper. Dinosaurs, pterodactyls, titanthoriums, diplodocuses, ichthyosauruses walked, swam, or flew at the tail of the procession. The van was composed of human monsters, huge-headed creatures without limbs or bodies, creeping slug-like on vaguely slimy extensions of chin and neck. The faces were mostly those of eminent contemporaries. Among the crowd, Burlap recognized J.J. Thompson and Lord Edward Tantamount, Bernard Shaw attended by eunuchs and spinsters, and Sir Oliver Lodge attended by a sheeted and turnip-headed ghost and a walking cathode tube. Sir Alfred Mond and the head of John D. Rockefeller carried on a charger by a Baptist clergyman, Dr. Frank Crane, and Mrs. Eddy wearing halos, and many others. The lizards died of having too much body and too little head, said Rampy in an explanation. So at least the scientists are never tired of telling us. Physical size is a handicap after a certain point. But what about mental size? These fools seem to forget that they're just as top-heavy and clumsy and disproportioned as any Diplodocus, sacrificing physical life and effective life to mental life. What do they imagine's going to happen? Burlap nodded in agreement. That's what I've always asked. Man cannot live without the heart. Not to mention bowels and skin and bones and flesh, said Rampion. They're just marching towards extinction, and a damned good thing, too. Only the trouble is that they're marching the rest of the world along with them. Blast their eyes. I must say I resent being condemned to extinction because these imbeciles and scientists and moralists and spiritualists and technicians and literary and political uplifters and all the rest of them haven't the sense to see that man must live as a man, not a monster of conscious braininess and soulfulness. Grr, I'd like to kill the lot of them. He put the drawing back into the portfolio and extracted another. Here are two outlines of history, the one on the left according to H.G. Wells, the one on the right according to me. Burlap looked, smiled, laughed outright. Excellent, he said. The drawing on the left was composed on the lines of a simple crescendo. A very small monkey was succeeded by a very slightly larger pithecanthropus, which was succeeded in its turn by a slightly larger Neanderthal man. Paleolithic man, Neolithic man, Bronze Age Egyptian and Babylonian man, Iron Age Greek and Roman man. The figure slowly increased in size. By the time Galileo and Newton had appeared on the scene, humanity had grown to quite respectable dimensions. The crescendo continued uninterrupted through Watt and Stevenson, Faraday and Darway, Bessemer and Edwin, Rockefeller and Wanamaker, to come to a contemporary consummation in the figure of Mr. H.G. Wells himself and Sir Alfred Mond. Nor was the future neglected. Through the radiant mist of prophecy, the form of Wells and Mond grew larger and larger at every repetition, wound away in a triumphant spiral clean off the paper toward utopian infinity. The drawing on the right had a less optimistic composition of peaks and declines. The small monkey very soon blossomed into a good-sized Bronze Age man who gave place to a very large Greek and a scarcely smaller Etruscan. 
the Romans grew smaller again. The monks of the Thebaid were hardly distinguishable from the primeval little monkeys. There followed a number of good-sized Florentines, English, French. They were succeeded by revolting monsters labeled Calvin and Knox, Baxter and Wesley. The stature of the representative men declined. The Victorians had begun to be dwarfish and misshapen. Their 20th century successors were abortions. Through the mists of the future, one could see a diminishing company of little gargoyles and fetuses with heads too large for their squelchy bodies, the tails of apes and the faces of the most eminent contemporaries, all biting and scratching and disemboweling one another with the methodical and systematic energy which belongs only to the very highly civilized. Every time we get to chapter 16 in the book, I tell my students, some of whom are pretty, uh, you know, talented artists, I really wish someone would draw me some fantastic versions of these drawings of Rampians. Uh, wouldn't it be just cool to hang those in my classroom? Although I bet there's no way my husband would let me keep them anywhere but at home in our own library. But the call still stands. Any of you artists out there, it's Teacher Appreciation Week if you catch my draft. <laughs> I wanted to start here because it does such a great job of providing us a starting point. In a lot of ways, the purpose of this third episode is really just to pick up where we left off in episode two. To go a bit deeper with some of the characters and the philosophies that we just got a taste of last week. So to get us where we're going, we have to look at where we've been. Last episode introduced another smattering of characters, Rampion and his wife Mary, Maurice Spandrel, and some first-hand experience with the infamous Lucy Tantamount. We've also now been introduced to the problem of the novel and its thesis, the varying philosophical positions, the point and counterpoints of various ideas and beliefs, the hypocrisy of trying to live by single ideals without consideration for the whole of life, which in a way the book is kind of trying to portray. Much of the criticism comes through the many rants at Sabisa's, though you get a pretty cute little artistic rendering of it here in chapter 16, which is what I just read to you. Uh, here, Rampion is in his study. He's meeting with Dennis Burlap, the editor of The Literary World, which Walter writes for. Burlap is interested in buying some of his drawings to put in the literary magazine, which provides Huxley the ability to use Rampion once again as the platform for that criticism. In each drawing, you see a degeneracy of contemporary man. Small, skinny body, giant blobby head that's too heavy to be hauled up, devolving back into savage beasts. You see a ton of contemporary figures in this, and they all stand for different heads of ideals, masters of religions, masters of science, masters of industry, and the like. It's definitely a caricature, of course. They're over-exaggerated for the sake of art with a capital A. But the point is easily made. Compartmentalizing bad, holistic living, good. Of course, it's all falling on mostly deaf ears and burlap. Well, maybe it isn't. It's certainly falling on perverted ears, but we'll get to that in a bit. We've been tracking back and forth the point and counterpoint dynamics of the characters as they've been introduced, especially as they've been following specific philosophies of life. Interesting enough, though, this week's chunk of chapters from 12 to 16 really focus pretty heavily on one. Lots of similars solving similar problems in the same way, and lots of dissimilar problems being solved in the same way. It's a pretty interesting little selection of case studies on the hedonistic project. So today we'll get into a little bit of depth there, though I'd like to do that in conjunction with its opposing philosophy, Stoicism, which isn't really represented much in these chapters, but will provide a nice backdrop for the criticism. It's actually a pretty quick set of chapters, not so much in length, but certainly in the focus we'll be taking, so we can really just jump right into this. 
Actually, first, I have to really back up. Because in order for this case study in hedonism to make sense, I gotta provide the contrasting point of reference. We spent a good deal of time, actually, on that contrasting point of reference. In the first episode, we looked at Philip and Walter as the point and counterpoint to each other in the life of the intellect versus the life of the emotion, respectively. Insofar as his introvertedness looks on the outside, Philip might often be characterized as a Stoic. He even goes so far as to mention in Chapter 14 that the Stoic philosophies had often appealed to him. He's not wrong. I actually find Stoicism to be a pretty appealing philosophy myself, especially as someone who teaches and has had to develop that tough skin that comes with a position that's often thinkless, public, and pretty easily criticized. I also come from a pretty Stoic family, at least on one side of my family tree. So here's a personal story. My dad was born in Waterbury, Connecticut. I've never been. Um, but he never failed to tell stories about how miserably cold it was there. So cold, actually, that they had to have shots for his asthma and everything else that, all the time. And he hated it. When he was eight, him and his mom and dad and younger brother moved to California. And then his sister was born here. But I don't think the New Englander ever really left them. My dad's family is also uh, substantially, back in kind of the time frame, really British. Our family is Clan Morrison, so there's actually tons of accessible family history. Uh, my aunt put together a lot of that in our family tree and have lots of different chronicles of some of our background. But um, we're related to a lot of different people, some of which were killed in the Salem Witch Trials on my grandfather's side. I always tell the story, don't want to mess with me because I might be a witch, who knows. <laughs> uh, we're also related to William Wallace, who is Braveheart. Uh, but we're related by his aunt, so it's legitimate. It's not one of his hundreds of illegitimate children. Anyway, New Englander, British, there's a certain behavioral protocol that's likely to be expected. For one, on my dad's side of the family, it's pretty quiet, pretty reserved, not super outgoing. I mean, I'm not really super outgoing either, but I can talk to people, I think. Even when I'm awkward, I'm at least aware I'm awkward, right? Mm. <laughs> my grandmother was really reserved, though. She had lots of cool hats and jewelry. We used to play this game called Pirates and Travelers. I still have it. It's super falling apart. It's a really fun game, though. Um, if I could find another, like, another copy of it, I might just buy it. But I didn't get a lot of time with my grandfather. Uh, he died the week after I was born. But I did get some time with my grandmother, who um, developed pretty bad Alzheimer's when I was about eight and, and lived with it for about 20 years. But things I remember, she had a big backyard, there were lots of fruit trees, lots of space. We used to play wiffle ball, me and my cousins. She made excellent apple pie. Her cooking, though, was pretty New England as far as, like, dinners and things, and so was her manner. Um, and that probably got passed down pretty well to her kids for sure. My dad, well, he used to tell me how much he hated Shakespeare and thought I was just a complete nerd and questioned my choice in philosophy. I mean, not really. He knew what I, I knew what I was doing. It's, you know, it was my dad. He liked to pull my chain a lot. He was, though, a great A stoic. I don't know if he intended it or if he knew it outright like that, but he absolutely was. Dad wasn't the kind of guy that said I love you, even if he meant it. He was a man of few words in the classical sense of that phrase. He was a sap, though. He used to cry at my concerts, um, and despite being a baseball playing jock when he was in high school, who hung out at the beaches between classes at Cal State Long Beach, he loved my marching band ears. It was so weird. He would sit in the back room where the computer was and the stereo, and he would just blast my shows. He would watch DCI, 
It used to drive my mom crazy. I just thought it was hilarious. But that's how he knew you lo he loved you. It, it didn't really need words. So when he got cancer in 2009, he handled about as you would expect a stoic to handle it. He was hurting, for sure. The chemo took it right out of him. Um, he had just finished and was on the upside when Andy and I got married in October of 2010. I pretty much carried down the aisle him. <laughs> and it wasn't the other way around. And though our father-daughter dance was pretty much the same way, I carried him, which was fine. It's cool. He carried me plenty of times. But yeah, I mean, he took it like a damn champ. It's not really surprising if you knew him at all. I personally kind of only hope that I handle half anything half that well. So I keep using the word, which probably is worth explaining at this point. Stoicism's a pretty old philosophy of life. There are a lot of many known, well-known philosophers of this tradition, Zeno, Cicero, Epictetus, Seneca. My personal favorite, though, of them all is Marcus Aurelius. Probably because he's just got the best story, I think. It totally makes sense in the scope of his philosophy. Marcus Aurelius was born roughly 121. His family was pretty wealthy. He had a solid political influence in that background. Uh, but like most well-to-do people of the time, he was tutored, uh, hired a, a personal tutor. It afforded him a lot of uh, opportunities. Um, because he was aristocratic, he got to flex that position in life. Uh, none of this really seems, though, like the hotbed of stoicism. He got really well connected with other political families, of course, lots of influence, and somehow he was just so awesome that he got adopted by and added to the line of succession. He became a consul first, then a co-ruler, and then eventually in 161 he became the sole emperor of the Roman Empire. Must be nice. <laughs> like they say, it's who you know, right? Well, he had fame, fortune, an entire freaking world power at his disposal, and a massive wealth to boot. But what has been the common trait of rulers with this kind of situation? Well, I mean, we only have to look at Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette for a good example there. Let them eat cake. A completely disaffected ruler disconnected with the general plight of the people, as if they can afford cake when they can't afford bread. Might as well tell them to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Isn't it interesting how we forget the original intent of that statement? It's been credited to a newspaper clipping from September 30th of 1834, which read, Probably Mr. Muffery has decided in handing himself over to Cumberland River or a barnyard fence by the straps of his boot. It was believed to be a kind of a snippy response to a man named Nimrod Murphy, who uh, claimed to have discovered perpetual motion. Now you know where that insult came from, too, you Nimrod. Perhaps my favorite of the misused idioms, though, is a jack-of-all-trade master of none, which we always forget the rest of that one, too, but oftentimes better than a master of one. Look at that. Justification for Dewey's perspective. Anyway, so if you look at Aurelius's life situation, nothing about that screams the development of Stoic philosophy. Instead, with all the wealth and power at his disposal, it seems pretty clear that hedonism could really flourish there. But maybe this is what makes him such an effective world leader. He didn't care about the money, the fame, or the power. His ruling choices weren't dictated by his own self-interest in that regard. In a lot of ways, he might have been a good illustration of Plato's philosopher king. Of course, if you're going to take that from the wrong view in looking at the Republic as a political manifesto, but I'll hold my tongue on that for now. <laughs> Maybe. But he really was quite good for the job, precisely because he didn't want it. Stoicism places value on none of those things. 
you could effectively do the job without worrying about those things and being able to worry about things that did matter because he didn't get caught up in all the materialism of it all and fear of loss and death and political and physical destruction. Aurelius wasn't the founder of Stoicism, though. That is generally attributed to Zeno between 334 and about 262 BC. Unlike more materialistic philosophies like hedonism, which we'll get here as well, Stoicism places value on happiness as a product of the cultivation of wisdom, which is the strenuous product of self-control. It starts with a core belief that, like many of these ancient philosophers, reality is ordered and rational, that it's constantly dynamic and changing, but because humans have been endowed with reason, or logos in the Greek word, it can be processed and understood, and it is then in the uncovering of those rational principles that so order the world that we find happiness. These principles are lasting eternal truths that can be found in the world. In fact, they govern it and ourselves. It's all the other irrelevancies that are accidents of being that make us miserable. In fact, Stoics believed that the world was so ordered to as basically render our lives predetermined. And because of that, our freedom really simply lies in how we respond to that determination. It's an attitude toward that which is, because we can't impress upon, manipulate, or change, or affect those essential principles. So how does one live a happy Stoic life, then? Well, one responds to and reacts to life by those ordered rational principles, which requires intellectual prowess, wisdom, and self-reflection. And controlling only that which can be controlled within the limits of those rational truths. In essence, the self and one's responses or reactions to the determined life events. Ethically, this means that we have to distance ourselves from the things in our lives that are de dis determined to be transient. Things that don't last, only satisfying momentary pleasures and desires, and those things end up bringing us more lasting pain than anything. It's an activated choice, though it's a limited one. A way of bringing together the principles of Aristotle's metaphysics, the Greek notion of eodaimonia, the worthwhile life, as being one of contemplation, thinking about the highest thing to think about, a.k.a. thought itself, and something of Camus' kind of Sisyphean absurd task, the notion of letting go of hope in something else, and long-gone pleasures, and controlling only that which can be controlled in deep limitation, which is one's own freedom in, uh, in this, is limitless in attitude, specifically, and an attitude towards existence. Stoicism outlines three major principles. The principle of desire, or the acceptance of the inevitability of one's fate, <laughs> see the word death, and recognize the idea of living in harmony with the world. Second, the discipline of action, which is really all about self-discipline in terms of the virtues, things like wisdom, justice, courage, um, the avoiding of uh, fear, craving, passions, false pleasures. Here's where my dad was super good at this, the detachment of manner, the reservation in the face of failure and success. And finally, the discipline of ascent, basically being rational in action and in speech. It's being grounded without being carried away into the irrational part of our being. It's all a game of control, hence the emphasis on the word discipline. It takes practice, habit. But maybe the stoic mindset can be a natural state for certain people who are naturally predisposed towards it. I mean, it could also be an environmentally conscious thing, but it seems to pop up in groupings. For Philip, this kind of detachment, self-control, and trend towards self-realization is really just, for lack of a better way to describe it, it's kind of who he is. Even though he seems to find himself to be less rigid, more malleable than Stoicism kind of sounds, as he says about himself, 
The essential character of the self consisted precisely in that liquid and undeformable ubiquity. In that capacity to espouse all contours and yet remain unfixed in any form, to take in with an equal facility of face impressions, to such molds as his spirit might from time to time occupy, to such hard and burning obstacles as it might flow round, submerged and in self-cold penetrate to the fiery heart of, no permanent loyalty was owing. The molds were easily emptied, and easily as they had been filled, the obstacles were passed by. But the essential liquidness that flowed where it would, that cool indifferent flux of intellectual curiosity, that persisted, and to that his loyalty was due. If there was any single way of life he could lastingly believe in, it was a mixture of Peronism and Stoicism which had struck him, an inquiring schoolboy among the philosophers at the height of human wisdom, into whose mold of skeptical indifference he had poured his unimpassioned adolescence. Against the Peronian suspense of judgment and the stoical imperturbability, he had often rebelled. But he had the rebellion ever been serious. Pascal had made him a Catholic, but only so long as the volume of Pensies was open before him. There were moments when, in the con company of Carlyle or Whitman or Bouncing Browning, he had believed in strenuousness for strenuousness' sake. And then there was Mark Rampion. After a few hours in Mark Rampion's company, he really believed in noble savagery. He felt convinced that the proudly conscious intellect ought to humble itself a little and admit the claims of the heart, eye and the bowels, the loins and the bones and skin and muscle, to its fair share of life. But always, whatever he might do, he knew quite well in the secret depths of his being that he wasn't a Catholic, or a strenuous liver, or a mystic, or a noble savage. And though he sometimes nostalgically wished he were one or the other of these beings, or all of them at once, as Rampion's always preaching, you can see Philip's admiration for Rampion here. But he was always secretly glad to be none of them, and at liberty even though his liberty was in a strange paradoxical way a handicap and a confinement to his spirit. He goes on in this chapter to further give Rampion the credit. Mark Rampion's right, in practice too, which makes it so much more impressive in his art and his living as well as in his theories. Rampion was proof of his own theories. Well, I don't agree with Philip. Well, I just, I just don't agree with Philip. There's nothing really here to concede. He may not think he's a stoic or he thinks he's rebelling against it and maybe he does internally struggle with it, but it seems pretty clear his detached mode of living, the way his quick intelligence sets itself to work immediately in all situations, comfortable or uncomfortable. But like he recognizes, it is strangely limiting and confining for him. But that's because he's not a proper stoic. Stoicism does not say, renounce pleasure, renounce the life of the body, renounce living. In fact, it claims very much to live in harmony with the world. That doesn't mean don't experience. It just means recognize the natural ends of things. Don't hold on to them or be sad about the death of things. Signify their importance, acknowledge, and move on. Go out and buy Aurelius's meditations. They're so beautiful. And I think it's really comforting philosophy, especially in times where we'd like to control things that aren't, aren't controllable. Well, here we are, right? This is right now. It might be a good exercise for the mind for today's situation. Highly recommended. So aside from this little snippet of Philip in chapter 14, this chapter set's not really about stoicism. In fact, it flies in the face of all that pretty regularly. You've got three dominant narratives about three hedonists, two of which are intertwined narratives and a third that's kind of only tangentially so. Last week we began the Walter Lucy saga, 
juicy, soap opera-esque, a little risque. Well, all that and more here in these chapters, too! At the beginning of this chapter set, Walter and Lucy have made it to Sabisa's. They've been sitting around and listening to a bunch of really obnoxious people talking. Lucy continues to bait people into conversation and has continued to string Walter along for the ride. Poor Walter. <laughs> he has to sit here and wait hour after hour. Uh, a glimmer of hope of what he wants. Finally, one opens up. Nearly all the party's left at this point. It's just her and him and Spandrel. And it's getting pretty late. He's already protested so many times that he needs to go home. Hours ago, a few times, no success there at getting Lucy to pick up his very poorly dropped hints. So they get up and leave Sabisa's. Once they get outside, Lucy invites them both to go back to her house, where they would be left uh, to a leftover food from the Tantamount party. Spandrel, of course, accepts, which then means for Walter that this pretty much is the end of the road. It's now after 3 o'clock in the morning, way past the point where he's told Marjorie he would be home. And he didn't really get what he wanted to boot. Total waste. He beats himself up about having stayed so long without getting what he wanted. He feels shame at his treatment from Marjorie, which then makes him complete the cycle of beating himself up again, and then beating himself up makes him hate Marjorie even more, and it's self-flagellation to the nth degree. He gets home. He tries to sneak into the place, his own place. <laughs> it's pretty funny. He goes to his room. Yeah, they have separate rooms. Was this common practice at the time? I don't really have any idea about that, but it seems pretty weird to me from my comfy contemporary seat. And he thinks he's safely snuck in. Like a thief in the night. False. Marjorie is totally awake. She's still crying to herself after beating herself up all night, reading his old love letters. Newsflash out there to you hopeless romantics. Never read the old love letters. One, they're sappy and horribly written, I promise. And two, they just make you more miserable. But maybe that's the point, isn't it? To make ourselves feel more miserable. Dare I say we like that feeling of misery. We've bought way too into the Hollywood idea of love, maybe. So when he gets into the bed, thinking he's safe, she calls out to him. <sighs> he sulks to her room. She confronts him with the why do you want me to die histrionics. He feels bad. He starts crying like a three-year-old. And she feels all maternal and holds him on the floor while he cries in the consolation of her embrace. I say consolation here because, well, the book does, but it's totally the right word. He's not crying because he feels bad, at least not about her. He's crying because he wanted Lucy and here he is stuck with second prize, which he doesn't want. It's like being brought sauerkraut when you ask for an ice cream sundae. Yeah, that's happened to me before. Okay, to be fair, though, they brought out the ice cream, too, but you get my point. It's a little diner. It's in West LA. It's just off Pico. They bring you pickles and sauerkraut even before you order. We went there late at night for a dessert once. Pie, I think. I don't need sauerkraut for pie. It was so weird. My favorite conversation is happening, though, behind all of this, between Spandrel and Lucy, after Walter has run home with his tail between his legs, just to keep that dog imagery consistent with Lucy's prior description of him. After Walter leaves, Spandrel bluntly asks her, Do you enjoy tormenting him? To which Lucy responds, But I don't. But you don't let him sleep with you, said Spandrel. Lucy shook her head. And then you say you don't torment him, poor wretch. Like I was saying last week, though, Spandrel certainly isn't chastising her. Instead, he says this. 
Still, he only gets what's due to him. He's the real type of murderee. It takes two to make a murder. There are born victims born to have their throats cut as the cutthroats are born to be hanged. You can see it in their faces. There's a victim type as well as a criminal type. Walter is the obvious victim. He fairly invites maltreatment. And it's one's duty, Spandrel says, making the clear insinuation that Lucy's the murderer, and he's not wrong, to see that he gets it. Spandrel openly encourages her, laying claim to the fact that it's giving fate a helping hand. Fate, the thing he wants to be real. So this plays nicely into the plots from the previous episode. If one's destined to be a murderer, might as well murder her then. Otherwise, one wouldn't be a murderer, right? You can't be a murderer who never murders, just like you can't be a writer who never writes. Right? So which one are you? Are you a murderer? Or a murderee? This eventually leads them all back to a discussion of ethicality. Lucy here espouses the idea of having all the experiences, good or bad. Doesn't matter. For her, there is no good experience or bad experience. Everything is equally amusing. In a way, there's some stoic detachment there, but really it comes from a place of boredom. Lucy, the subjectivist, the experiencer, might be a good representation of Kierkegaard's pseudonym A from either or, the Asthete, who stands for the aesthetic stage, which is remarkably like hedonism. Soren Kierkegaard is such an interesting dude. He's probably my favorite philosopher whose philosophies I don't necessarily agree with. If you've ever seen the show Psych, that's him. His father would grill him as a child about the details of pretty much everything he knew and learned. As a result of all this prep sure, he was deeply neurotic. When his dad died and left him not a small fortune, Kierkegaard was free, but not unscathed. He had the freedom to study, but he was socially awkward. His introversion manifested interestingly, though. Rather than being a recluse completely, he was publicly flamboyant and very outgoing. He was super well-known as someone of wealth and young in particular who could just do whatever he wanted without much consequence. Money will do that for you. So people didn't really make the connection between the Kierkegaard they saw around town to the Kierkegaard who did the fantastically internally aware deep meditations of the works. It also didn't help that most of what he wrote was published under meaningful but seemingly disconnected and random pseudonyms. As a result, finding his philosophy is pretty difficult. It requires reading between the lines of everything he wrote and filling in some of the gaps. Luckily, later works were published in his name, and it kind of helped to build a little bit of a unifying thread. Ultimately, in super reductive form for the sake of time, Kierkegaard's philosophies boil down to three stages of the development of self. The aesthetic, which is based in momentary pleasures and at the whim of environment. It results in a lack of choice and a kind of go-with-the-flow attitude. The second, the ethical, where the aesthetic fails to provide meaning and respite from boredom. The ethical provides deeper meaning through a renouncing of the self for the sake of the universal. The rational principles. Sounds kind of stoic, right? And finally, the religious, the absolute relation to the absolute, where one recognizes the individual uniqueness of one's inward state as manifested in relation to the Most High, as above the universal and making ultimate choices of selfhood. That's criminally reduced. Sorry. Yikes. So specifically, either or is a back and forth between two characters in two separate stages of the development of Kierkegaard's philosophy. The first is the aesthete, who basically rationalizes much of the hedonistic mindset. 
My favorite section I share with my students on the issue of boredom, which comes from a section of the book called The Rotation Method. In essence, A advocates that boredom is the root of all evil, and so we must and absolutely always aim to avoid it. This often results poorly in being a busybody, which is the absolute opposite of fixing the problem, because most of the time I think our most bored states are those when we're occupied with something stupid and mundane, with being busy. Rather, he says, we should aim for idleness, which he distinguishes as the only true good. So, he consciously advocates for something of a crop rotation method for dealing with boredom. This can happen in two ways. One, the easy but less successful way of changing the object of intrigue, which he recognizes eventually fails. Or two, the better way, which is to limit the material stuff, but to do a better job of altering the mindset around the stuff. In other words, seeing things in a different light. It takes work and mental habit. Again, sounds a bit like a stoic discipline. But there's significantly less limit. And through exercising and memory and forgetting, this can go on endlessly. And hey, look, we're back at that one again, too. For more on memory and forgetting, see the first episode of Series 2. Lucy is very much A, but A who is still immaturely figuring out the crop rotation thing. For her, it's always a change of stuff. She acknowledges as much later on when she's laying in bed with Walter. Whoa, 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 back up what? Yeah, spoiler alert, sorry. I'll come back and fill in the details in a moment. But while lying there and he's fretting about love, she kind of drops some hints. Living modernly is living quickly, she went on. You can't carry around a wagon load of ideals and romanticisms about with you these days. When you travel by airplane, you must leave your heavy baggage behind. The good old-fashioned soul was all right when people lived slowly. But it's too ponderous nowadays. Perhaps it's a pity... But you can't get something for nothing. If you like speed, if you want to cover the ground, you can't have luggage. The thing is to know what you want and be ready to pay for it. I know exactly what I want, so I've sacrificed the luggage. If you choose to travel in a furniture van, you may, but don't expect me to come along with you, my sweet Walter, and don't expect me to take your grand piano in my two-seater monoplane. We already know that she's all about all the experiences. So you get the sense right away that as soon as she's bored or tired of something, she moves on. She said as much here. Once she's done with one thing, she'll move on to another, including living in England, including her situation with Walter. Whew, he better brace himself. Walter, though, unfortunately is a hedonist who lacks control over his hedonism to the same sophistication as Lucy. And that weakness leaves him exploitable by people who do have control over theirs. Unless this target is weaker-willed, he really doesn't stand a chance. He's lucky that Marjorie is even more a victim than he is, more a murderee. It's the only way he gets to play at being the murderer. But maybe that gives him a sense of false confidence. You get a sense that as she's thinking about him and reading the letters he wrote back in Chapter 5, that he's horribly hopelessly romantic, and that he's better at controlling things from a safe distance than he is in practice face-to-face. Theoretically, Walter plays a good hedonist, but up close, not so much. It's hard to be a hopeless romantic in the face of sordid reality. So often, you get this hopeless romanticism, his desire to love the poor and the good things and care about the intellect and virtue, but in practice, he's terrible at it. It's what makes him exploitable, and it's not even just Lucy that exploits him. In Chapter 5, Marjorie describes him as being too sensitively quick to see the other person's point of view, 
like when he lets himself be overcharged by cabmen or porters, or when he gave handfuls of silver to tramps with obviously untrue stories about jobs on the other side of the country and no money to pay the fare. She's not wrong to point out that this is a weakness, but it's not his consideration for people or his sensitivity to their views or pains. He's not being considerate of any of this. In fact, he's not really being considerate of her either. It's always out of a hedonistic desire to avoid painful, hostile, or confrontational experiences. Unlike Lucy, who can go over pleasure in all experiences, Walter really isn't able to get at pleasures, just the avoidance of pains. It's hedonism all the same, it's just not very good hedonism. His situation with Lucy isn't much better. Still pain avoidance, although he thinks that there's some pleasure in it. It's not very lasting, at least. His agonizing is pretty palpable in chapter 13. After swearing off Lucy the night before, after leaving the party in Sabisa's with his unrequited desires, there's not a euphemism if there ever was one right there, <laughs> he finds himself dumbly back at her place. In a fever of lust, he goes after her, only to in be interrupted twice by a screaming cockatoo, and how f ridiculously absurd is that? And then by the arrival of Illage, who she's invited over to keep Walter squirming. It's a disaster. Hilariously. So he storms out of the room, and he goes out into the street to cry about it for a bit. There are confessable agonies, sufferings of which one can be positively proud. Of bereavement, of parting, of the sense of sin and the fear of death the poets have eloquently spoken. They command the world's sympathy. But there are also discreditable anguishes, no less excruciating than the others, but of which the sufferer dare not, cannot speak. The anguish of thwarted desire, for example. That was the anguish which Walter carried with him into the street. It was pain, anger, disappointment, shame, misery, all in one. He felt as though his soul were dying in torture. And yet the cause was unavowable, woe, even ludicrous. Suppose a friend were now to meet him and to ask him why he looked so unhappy. I was making love to a woman when I was interrupted first by the screaming of a cockatoo, then by the arrival of a visitor. The comment would be enormous and derisive laughter. His confession would have been a smoking room joke. And yet he could not be suffering more if he had lost his mother. I know we're not exactly supposed to laugh and mock someone suffering, but in a sense it kind of feels like karma and permissible. And he's right to feel miserable. And he's right about not sharing it, too. So he does the same thing he always does. Runs from the pain to avoid it, to avoid more of it, and goes home to Marjorie. But he finds zero relief there, either. She smells Lucy's perfume on him and makes him leave, which forces him to go right back to Lucy, this time with enough frustration to actually take what he wants. And it's then that he becomes... <laughs> I almost said that wrong. It's then that he becomes Lucy's mistress, which is actually probably more correct than the opposite, but it's here that Lucy becomes his mistress. I like it the other way around. <laughs> but I have to echo the point I made in the last episode. She did not give up control to him here. She gave him the illusion of it. And that's essentially it. He can be happy for a moment. He can pretend dominance. He can assume he's in his hedonistic bliss here. Soaking up all the pleasures. But it's all short-lived. 
He finds out quickly that Lucy's playing a much better hand than he is in this one. And so any submission to him, any real love, the romantic part of his pleasure is empty. He asks, stupidly, a similar question Marjorie asks him in the beginning of the book. All the circling karma in this one. Lucy, do you love me? (sighs) Like Marjorie, he knows the answer is no. But it's like pushing the bruise to see if it still hurts. Oddly, there's satisfaction, I think, in the pain, in the being right about that thing. When one expects the worst, there's no disappointment in being right. But maybe a happy surprise at being wrong. Well, he's right. She doesn't love him. I wonder if love is even a possibility for her. And when he asks how sex is possible without love being a part of the equation, we see the biggest difference. They rotate crops similarly, people to people. But what they find happiness in those people is different. Lucy is happy to have dominion over someone. And Walter simply appears to be that. But it's not actually what makes him happy. He actually does want the crazy romantic love. He's just looking for it in all the wrong places. Ooh, I feel a song coming on. Just kidding. You don't want to hear me sing. I promise. And honestly, Lucy isn't even the only hedonist in the book that has found a way to make Walter overtly suffer. Although, to be fair, this one isn't really aiming to make Walter suffer, or at least not deriving much satisfaction from it specifically, but Walter does suffer from his boss, Dennis Burlaps, whose self-serving position of authority. At the beginning of chapter 13, after Walter's self-effacing night home crying on the floor of Marjorie's room, unsatisfied, self-loathing, he promises her to fix things, and part of that is getting himself better pay for his work at the literary world. So he works up his courage, something he has very little to begin with, and goes to work to ask Burlap for a raise. As expected, it goes horribly. He starts to ask, Burlap snakes around the issue, basically tells him that he writes too well and as a result the paper doesn't make enough money, but then he'll ask the accountant, who is a totally fictional creation of Burlap's, to avoid the confrontation of having to say anything negative or make a negative decision that anybody can get mad at him for, and to see if he can get him a couple of extra cents on the dollar, totally insulting, further emasculating. The funny thing is that Burlap basically beats Walter at a game that he too often has tried to play against Marjorie. That whole double-think thing, where you get someone to do the reverse psychology and get people to think your decisions are really their decisions. So Burlap basically makes Walter feel terrible enough to tell him not to worry about getting him more money, that he would be angry if he did ask for more money. It's cute. So, so sad. Come on, Walter. Be a man. You can see little hints and pictures of, Wal- of Walter being somewhat of a Wooly Loman character here from Death of a Salesman. You get the similar dynamic between him and his boss, the courage that isn't really courage, and the results are relatively the same. But I guess Marjorie would say he's being sensitive to other people here, like a damn martyr. I don't, I don't buy it. Having to stand up for yourself, having to say no, requires commitment and conflict. Going with the given requires no choice from you. It's passive existence. You have to wonder, though, if there's a point at which this will boil over for Walter. How much agony is too much? How much running actually brings more suffering than the release of suffering? 
We could maybe make some comparisons here to Marcel and the Stranger. Marcel lives in pretty much the same way, although I think for different reasons. In Camus' book, Marcel lives in the same whimsical, nonchalant way of passive avoidance. When people ask him to do things, he agrees. Not willingly, not reluctantly, but for the sense of, eh, why not? When Marie asks him to marry her, he says, sure. When he shows no real regard for her emotion about it either way, it annoys her. When his neighbor Raymond asks Marceau to write a letter to attest to Raymond's character as a good man, Marceau says, sure, even though Raymond is a terrible human who beats his girlfriend. He rarely makes a commitment. He's rarely all that dishonest, though, either. So when it comes down to his trial for killing a man on the beach, he doesn't show any emotion there either or any regard for it, and so his honesty there actually ends up burying him, because he doesn't even care enough to lie, and it's less energy and conflict to just be truthful. Marceau does have a breaking point, though, and that's religion. Even after many times of the visitation by the priest, Marceau is unrelenting here. Eventually, he blows up on the priest and all his emotions finally come barreling forward, washing him clean, to use the religious language kind of ironically. Maybe Walter will have a similar emotional outburst, an inclination or awareness for his natural tendency to run. Maybe his fight reflex will eventually kick in and override. It remains to be seen. Don't get me wrong, though. Walter isn't Merceau. Walter might actually care too much and be too self-preserving, which is the reason behind his passivity, whereas Merceau is really well past the point of hope in anything else. And it might take that point for Walter to get to the place where hope in their romance finally goes. But to return back to Burlap. Ugh. Do I have to? I hate burlap. Is it possible to hate a character in a fiction? Because if it is, it's this one for me. I really hate this character. Most of the time I try my best to just get through him, which means, honestly, he's probably a successful character. My husband thinks he's great. We argue endlessly about this. In fact, you'll have to wait for it for a bit, but tune into the final episode of this series because he and I will be making our arguments for this character public just for your enjoyment. I'll be suffering, though, so I guess that makes me a Walter in this instance, and you, my audience, probably spandrel. Dennis Burlap is a skis. We meet him first, way back in the party scene of some of the earlier chapters, standing in front of one of John Bidlake's amorous paintings, complaining to Mrs. Betterton, a religious woman, about how sordid and gross Bidlake's paintings are. Good in form, he says, bad in heart. But oh, the heart. This becomes his mantra, and every single character knows it. But few of the smart characters, and by that I really mean Spandrel, Rampion, and Philip, are persuaded by his sliminess. Mrs. Betterton, though, of course, is flattered by his discussion of the heart and religiosity. As you read, though, you start to read between the lines. This whole conversation with her isn't even had with her. It's had at her. Like he's using her as a test subject for an upcoming article on art. So he's really just repeating things he's already written down. It's hardly a genuine conversation. There's always discussion of his dual faces, too in the form of the angel and the devil conscience that sits on the shoulder like an old Disney cartoon. Most of the time, he plays the part of the angel, but it's always a part to be played. Once in a while, the devil slips out. His real self, I think. 
or more likely to be the case. And he gets to watch people react shockingly. And he loves that. So much of Burlap is a game of appearances. And he's kind of a tricky one. Unlike the rest of the hedonists in the book, he's consciously a hedonist who gets his pleasure from appearing to be a religious martyr and using that to get the women. Unlike Spandrel and Lucy who go after people from a position of dominance and control, he goes after them in a much slimier way. Through their pity, sympathies, their maternal instincts, and passivity. He plays weak in order to gain trust and manipulates control that way. One need only to look at the description of his wife, Susan. His love for the living Susan had been as much self-induced and self-intensified as his grief at her death. He had loved not Susan, but the mental image of Susan and the idea of love fixedly concentrated on in the best Jesuitical manner until they became hallucinatingly real. His ardors for this phantom, and the love of love, the passion for passion which he had managed to squeeze out of his inner consciousness, conquered Susan, who imagined they had some connection with herself. What pleased her most about his feelings was their pure, unmasculine quality. His ardors were those of a child for its mother, a rather incestuous child, it is true, but how tactfully and delicately the little Oedipus. Well, first... You get something kind of Gatsby-ish here also. There's a lot of Gatsby in this. Like I said, this is really just Gatsby with fancier British language to it. But it's the same idea, this idea of putting a person on a pedestal and then building an, eff uh, an effigy to them. And then loving that effigy, but not really loving them. It's the same problem that Gatsby has with Daisy and the image that he's built with, uh, of her over the last five years of not seeing her. But it's really that skeeziness at the end, the little Oedipus. Last episode I mentioned my absolute distaste for critical articles of this book in particular, specifically because of the way they attribute the Oedipus thing to Spandrel, when really, here, it's the low-hanging fruit, the actual Oedipus, as described here in Burlap. It's confirmed in his current situations, too. Susan wasn't a one-off. He really just wants to be babied. And in being babied, he gets women to trust that he's not like other men, enough to be just what they're afraid of in those other men. To be fair, though, Burlap's manipulations aren't always successful. His secretary, Miss Cobbett, was an admirer of Susan as a child, and when she reached out to Burlap with her sympathies at Susan's death, Burlap made her the target of his next exploit. But it didn't work. And in fact, it's really not worked for him. Ethel Cobbett is not to be touched, and because of this, his false piety turns into a cold disdain for her. When Burlap brings Beatrice onto the literary world, Beatrice supplants Ethel in his feelings, and Ethel takes notice and becomes a major thorn in his side. The real angel on his shoulder that isn't just a sham. She constantly jeers at him when he does anything that looks immoral and against his religious principles and his loyalty to the memory of Susan, which makes him angry. Nothing like someone being in on your secret, being a sham and all that. Beatrice, though, isn't really on to him, and isn't really all that smart, to be honest. She's also an easy target for him, though a bit of a tut nut crack, so to speak. She was abused by her uncle as a child and is also kind of somewhat untouchable. But Beatrice, who has some money, has invested in the literary world. 
As a result, Burlap brings her on to edit and do a bit of writing as kind of a thank you sort of thing, but really so that he can find a way into her bed, too. He begins living with her, and it's after the party when he returns back to her place that you see the weird dynamic play out between them. So weird. She's reserved and somewhat shy, but she commands. Pecks, as the other characters like to say. She tells him what to do, like a mother would. Pecks. He willingly allows it, follows orders which softens her toward him. She starts to see him like an innocent child, which then lowers her guard and allows his manipulations. Like I said, skeezy, right? Ugh. It's one thing to be manipulative, but at least do so honestly. That's probably a terrible word here. Lucy's manipulations of Walter, they're horrible, but also karma, and not dishonest. She's pretty much told him straight, and he's just dumb. Walter's dishonest, but not entirely. It's just not disgust. Everyone knows what's happening, and Marjorie left her husband for an affair, too, so it's not entirely... Well, I don't want to say unjustified. Maybe I'll just say again, not really surprising. Spandrel's manipulation of little Harriet? Well, that's dishonest. But it's justified? I didn't say it was good justification. But at least gives utterance to rationale. It's done precisely for its badness. Not excusable. But different than Burlap's. Burlap's professes innocence. And continues to profess innocence. And looks to be innocent. And will always look to be innocent. But isn't. Or at least isn't an honest representation of intentions. I don't know. I have a hard time putting into words Burlap. So I guess my final question in all this episode here then gets at that last point. Which is worse? Spandrel's dishonest manipulation of Harriet or Burlap's dishonest manipulation of Beatrice? Does justifying your action as evil make the action at least recognizable and thus less problematic than doing it under the false pretense of religiosity? My husband and I actually just had a conversation about this, but not in relation to point-counterpoint. We went for a drive the other day just to get out of the house, and Eleanor likes to listen to Disney music, so we put on the soundtrack to Hunchback of Notre Dame. Great soundtrack. Horrible movie, but great soundtrack. So anyway... I made the comment that the the villain in that one, Judge Claude Frollo, is to me the most evil of the Disney villains. He's more evil than Scar. He's more evil than Hades himself. I mean, Hades is kind of given the underworld. What do you expect? It's a downer job. And he's basically a glorified used car salesman in Hercules anyway. But it's because Frollo's position is an authority that claims high moral morality. But to bend that morality then into something so completely not moral? I don't know. I find that incredibly more problematic. Maybe I'm wrong. What do you think? If you have thoughts on this, make sure to check out the Twitter feed at fill in the details. Leave a comment. I'd love to hear what you think about that one. I will be coming back on this topic in our next episode, too, since we actually didn't get into Spurlap too much, and he's our other looks-like-a-hedonist. A lot of what he says comes off that way to other characters, but like I said in the previous episode, a lot of his commentary on boredom starts to come off in a lot of the same way as Kierkegaard's athlete does in either-or, and it sounds a lot actually like the moment of the paradox in what's called the ethical. If anything... 
Spandrel might be Kierkegaard's demonic. In fact, that's pretty much where I intend to go in the next episode. Which I'm also going to get into comparing some of the nihilism of Nietzsche's philosophies there as well. I'm really looking forward to it. So thanks for checking back in today. As always, resources are in the episode details, and you can find the podcast pretty much all over the place now, so subscribe. Looking forward to being back with you next week. As always, I'm Stacey Cabrera, and this is Feeling the Details.